This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to the World Beyond War podcast. This is Mark Elliott Stein, and if you've listened to all 33 of our previous episodes, you've certainly heard my voice a lot, which is why I thought it would be nice to try something different here. We're going to interview the great peace activist, Kathy Kelly, who is taking over the role of World Beyond War's board president from another great peace activist, Leah Bolger, who is stepping down from that role. You may remember Aniela Carcedo from Venezuela and currently in Mississippi, USA, from our last episode. Ani is also on our organization's board, and I thought it would be interesting to ask Ani to host this interview while I remain here in the room twiddling the audio settings and maybe occasionally jumping into the conversation as well. So let's get started. Ani, it's great to have you here today, and you can take over now. Thank you. I am beyond excited to be able to host this conversation with such an amazing person, um, with Miss Kathy. I was blown away by your bio and everything that you have done, and I could read about it the entire day, and I can share all the things that you have done, but I think you're incredibly brave, committed, and a persistent woman, and that's it's really inspiring for me as a young peace activist. I'm 20 and have the opportunity to speak with you. It's just mind-blowing. Thank you so much for being here today. How are you? Oh, well, Ani, the last five minutes have certainly made my day. Um, I'm able to see your face because we have a, a video component, and I, I see um, just the eagerness that radiates from you, and I feel very excited and I can tell that you are somebody who can work hard because I I have tried so hard to learn another language, Ani, and it's not easy. But you've done it. You've really done it. Um, and I'm I'm glad for people in Mississippi and in your community that they have you with them. Uh, so I think we can learn from each other today. And thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for bringing us together. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's I think it's it's a. Uh response. You know, it was survival. I didn't speak English when I came here and it was used to survive. I needed to eat. I needed to communicate my needs. So I had to learn another language. So anytime, if you ever want to practice Spanish, I am happy to help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Kathy, I have so many questions. I was reading, I mean, you have your own Wikipedia page. That is amazing. Uh, and I was reading a little bit about you and in the things that you have done and the places that you have traveled because I've I've read that you have lived you have visited Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen and all these other places that we usually don't don't hear from from people from the United States going there uh, from from a peace standpoint. But before we jump in all of that, I would love to to ask you. I've read that you, when you went to high school, you went to a Catholic school, but you also went to a desegregated public school in Chicago, right? Well, um, I, I want to say that it, it was certainly a segregated neighborhood. Oh, my goodness. It certainly was the, the southwest side of Chicago. And we went half-day Catholic, half-day public. But the public school was just beginning to integrate because there was a neighborhood um, where many people who drove buses in Chicago were, they were black people. The bus drivers wanted to live near the route where they started their bus driving day, and that was in our neighborhood. And so there was just the beginning of integration, and the resistance, and the racism, and the cruelty. It, it was like an avalanche. It was terrible. So that's where I come from. Wow. So was it? violence, something that was common for you in your childhood? Do you remember um, you're mentioning this, you know, integration and you're mentioning racism? Is it violence? Was it common in your day-to-day life? Well, I think a structural violence was common because we took it for granted that we had an automatic God-given right to have kind of a, maybe a bigger slice of the pie than others in Chicago who were struggling a lot to get by. But at the same time, 
you know, I, I grew, I, when I went to high school, I took an economics course and they had a kind of chart where we fell due to family income on the chart. And I thought, oh my gosh, we're between upper lower class and lower middle class. And that was a bit of a, a wake up for me. But I felt so secure. You know, I never really seriously worried that the, the Kelly family might not have enough to eat. Now, I know my father worried a lot and he was he was a high school math teacher in a Catholic school and a very low salary. But I think we had, as things go on, a great deal of enviable security. However, I'm sad and sorry that as young people, we really didn't recognize the racism of our neighborhood, nor did I uh, ever get beyond a point of um, crying about the Vietnam War and admiring people who tried to do something. But they, it was like they were on the moon. You know, I, how, there, there seemed like a huge gap between those people and me. And now in my life, I've counted some of those people as among my best friends. So, so life can take some unusual changes. Yeah. So when was that? Do you remember when you, you back in, in your, you know, your high school days, you're talking about the Vietnam War. Do you remember a specific moment that inspired you to become a peace builder? Mm, well, Brother Conrad, he was in the Catholic school. And he had a very good idea. He would show a film to us in the daytime, and then he'd invite our parents to come and see the film that night. And so, you know, ideally, around the dinner table, somewhere along the line, people would discuss one of these films. And he chose a film called Night and Fog. And Annie, that was, I see Mark nodding his head, that really was a, a marker event for my life. It's, it's a powerful film. What was it about? Well, French artist historians after World War II, very shortly after the war had ended, when the concentration camps had, um, I mean, people say they were liberated. I, I don't know what to say. People were evacuated. And so the French filmmakers, uh, in a film with no dialogue, except an, a narrator commenting very slowly and in French, so I read subtitles, and with classical music in the background, panned in on the remains of the camp. And you saw blankets that were made out of human hair and lampshades that were made out of human skin and children's drawing paper. And the idea that bodies, after they had been cruelly gassed, were then dissected and nothing was, quote, wasted. And there was a train track leading up to one of the camps. And you couldn't help but wonder, well, couldn't somebody have ripped up the train track? Uh, couldn't the neighbors? I mean, this was not out in the middle of nowhere. And when, when these smokestacks would spew out the ash after the bodies were burned, people must have smelled it. And so I thought at a very deep level in my emotional makeup, I will never be a bystander. I will never sit on the bleachers. I will never watch. But then, Annie, as I said, I went through the Vietnam War, like Brigadoon in the Mist, you know, just I didn't get active. So I was a late bloomer. It took me a while, but, but the sense of relief I finally felt when I did get what shall I say, active, when I did start to take actions in accord with what I really believed, it was just an overwhelming sense of relief. Like, not only have I found an action I can take, but I've found a community that I can, you know, take action with. And that was a, a gift beyond anything anyone ever deser deserves in life. You just fortunately sometimes are in the right place. Yeah. So what was the first action that you remember taking? towards peace building? The, well, the, the very first, I suppose, was, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Jesuit schools, Jesuit high schools and universities, but they're, 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 they're kind of, a, in Chicago, there were three top high schools, and one of them was a Jesuit school called St. Ignatius College Prep, and I had just been hired to teach there. Mm -hmm. And um, I, w I wanted to protest registration of young men for the draft, 
And so we went inside the post office and we sang peace songs. So I was arrested for singing. Um, and uh, you were arrested for singing. Yeah, uh, I remember it was a, it was an old Irish tune. They're rolling out the guns again, hurroo hurroo, and they'll never take our daughters and sons again. Well, okay, so we got, I got arrested. And a reporter said, "Well, do you have a a job?" And I didn't want him to think I was you know some person who had you know no purpose in life. So I said, "Yeah, I'm a teacher." And then he said, "Well, where do you teach?" And I said, "Well, I mean, I'll start teaching at St. Ignatius, but don't print that, okay?" Next headlines, St. Ignatius College Prep English teacher arrested. So I walked down to the gathering for the faculty for the first day. <laughs> the heads just all turned. Is that her? So I was her for quite a bit. But um, I think the most significant act for me was um, the following year. I went to the treasurer, the person in charge of paying salaries and stuff at St. Ignatius College Prep. And I said, John, could you lower my salary beneath the taxable income? And he, I think, you know, was ready to set up a psychiatric appointment for me. He thought I'd lost my mind. And, I, you know, I, he, he was so kind. And he, you know, tried to kind of warn me, you know, if you do this. He said, well, what about like the IRA? And I thought he meant the Irish Republican Army. So I said, no, John, I'm a pacifist. I don't support them either. Um, but uh I, I did that. I, I took my salary from, I guess, 25000 a year down to 3000 a year and um, kept beneath the taxable income so that I wouldn't pay taxes for war because I was teaching my students constantly, you know, we shouldn't be buying weapons, storing weapons, selling weapons. War is wrong. You know, I'm still thinking about night and fog and the possibility of a nuclear exchange, and I still think about that. And, you know, it's not like the Air Force is out having bake sales to raise the money. You know? mm -hmm. We have the bake sales for, you know, keeping our, you know, education efforts going. And they get all just constantly that budget for the military is raised and fattened. And, and I think it's, it, it leads to practicing child sacrifice. So I won't pay. I just, I just knew but no one should do that, get involved in Vortex refusal, I think, unless they really know I'm not going to pay. If they come after me and I have to leave my job, I'll, I, I quit a job and finished as a volunteer for, for till the end of the year. If, um, if, if I'm in a relationship and that person says, well, you know, I'd like us to start, but I can't do it. So the IRS has been like my spiritual director. Um, <laughs> And I don't mind that, but um, it does get you geared up to practice living more simply because, I mean, I never learned how to drive a car, but if I had owned one, they might take it. And um, if I owned a home, it could be taken. So I, I, um, I've been pretty good at not owning things, and, and I've been happy with that. But not everybody would be, and um, now I'm on Social Security, so I, I don't really think about it too much. I was going to ask you, how, whenever you took that decision, to how how did you survive well you know we have what's in this country there's something called the catholic worker movement if you go to any big city and sort of find out well where's the soup kitchen where's the shelter you'll probably see some kind of worn down old house and quite a few people will be living there and it'll be a house of hospitality and that that network exists all across the country and so um I was always in community with people who felt similar to me. Um, I kept working and teaching English as a second language or, and sometimes for a few years, I would um, claim more allowances on the W-4 form. It's a bit of a complication with our tax situation, but you you can, if you claimed eight or nine allowances, then you could up your salary a bit without paying taxes. And then I just I just didn't file at the end of the year. That is uh, a violation of the law. Okay. Um, and at one point, the IRS did come after um, they had said they would garnish my wages, so I quit my job. And the, the IRS did come to my home. A woman came. And at the time, I was a full-time caregiver for my father. And it was, um, I, you know, as I said, he didn't have a huge income, but he had a social security check and that paid the rent. And then about five of us lived together and we shared the care for my dad. It was a good time. 
Uh, my dad was happy living with us. I, I was kind of surprised, but he liked the young people and they were some of the most idealistic young people in the world. But anyway, when the IRS person came and she said, well, you, you don't own a car, do you? No, uh, you don't own the spread. No, it's, it's, it's dad's check pays the rent and dad's in a wheelchair and kind of leaning over. And um, she took a look at the furniture and she said, you know what? I'm just going to write you off as uncollectible. So I was very fortunate in that regard. And they've never gotten in touch with me since. But that's unusual. I mean, um, I, I will say that taking that step of, you know, thinking it through and knowing, I, you know, I, if the mafia came to my door and knocked and said, you know, we're threatening you, you're going to have to give us money. I think I would try to find some way to avoid paying that. So um, the people that are making nuclear weapons and can annihilate the world, why it's so serious now. It's like anybody who has a nuclear weapon, any nuclear weapon wielding state is sort of like the mafia holding a gun to the head of other people and saying, if you don't do what I do, what I say, even if I'm a bully and I'm menacing you, I might use this weapon. So we've got to get ourselves out of this. It's a terrible situation to be in. So anyway, I don't regret uh, having said I'm out. I, I can't pay. I, I can't be part of that. But that never was enough. I mean, it got to be so routine. And so I felt like, well, I can take a bigger step. And, and what I, was it? Which well, I went to prison for a year for planting corn on top of a nuclear missile silo site. <laughs> I read that you have been in prison over 60 times. Is that right? Well, I've been arrested. Actually, it's probably over 80 times. But, um, but, And I think about that now because, I mean, you can see me. I'm, I'm sort of thin and gray-haired and and you see these pictures of grandmothers in Russia, you know, surrounded by four big men who were carting off the grandmothers carrying two signs. And, and people are saying, ah, that's horrible. And I thought, well, I, I can tell you a whole bunch of grandmothers' names, <laughs> myself included. You know, and I've been hauled off and left to swelter in a paddy wagon for seven hours. And one time I was hogtied and somebody kneeled on me. And, um, uh, you know, I, I thought, well, if I'd been another color and saying, I can't breathe. I was saying that, but if I, I thought I could have died if I'd been black. So those are some realities you learn um, when you get arrested, but in prison, you really learn a lot because you've got a lot of time for learning. So I've had three stints in federal prison, one for a year and two for three months at a time. And what you learn is is just how onerous the length of sentencing handed out in this country is. You know, I want to, I'm jumping all over the place here, but I want to say something about what has been taught to me when I've gone to war zones. And that is that where you stand determines what you see. And if you're standing under the bombs, you see things so much differently than if you're far away, like I am right now looking at Ukraine, but the media is helping us empathize with people in Ukraine. And, and, and we are, I think, getting constant coverage. But most of the war zones I went to were ignored. Nobody really paid attention to the civilians and the children and the trauma and people plunged into becoming refugees and the wreckage of their country you know, in Yemen today, in Afghanistan today. So the same is true in prison. You know, you're you're in a world of imprisoned beauty. All these really wonderful women that I met who could have been, you know, my sisters, my in-laws, my co-workers, and they were trapped inside this prison. When the first time I went to prison in 1989, one woman in the prison had a 10-year sentence, and we were kind of like whispering and pointing like, "Can you believe she got 10 years?" The next time I went to prison, that was a norm. And people were getting 15-year sentences. And can you imagine a mother separated from her children so long that she starts to weep saying, I really don't think they remember what I look like. And, you know, when people get out of prison after that length of incarceration, 
They face family breakup and stigma and difficulty getting a job and difficulty finding housing. And so sure, they get right back into, you know, you, you need some help, sister. And, uh, you know, the help is very often something that's illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I learned a lot about the prison industrial complex. And I the, the biggest impact for me was that I learned, okay, I don't ever want to be the warden. Like the person who's in charge of the prison. It so it changed the way that I was a teacher. I mean, I was never a mean teacher, but, you know, you can have an attitude like this is my class and I'm the teacher and you're the subject. Um, the, so, and, and really, I couldn't any longer go and take a night at the shelter because it felt too much like, you know, I was in charge. I was the, you know, so perfect equality I know isn't possible, but um, I do have a kind of a strong revulsion to, um, I don't know, hierarchy. That's why I think it's sort of funny that David asked me to be president of World Beyond War. And I said, yes, because I don't believe in hierarchy of, of any kind. And I was trying to think, couldn't I be the minister or something? Were you ministry? <laughs> you serve? Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll just have to say tongue in cheek, Madame President. <laughs> I 100% agree with you in the hierarchy thing. I, I was lucky to to create a network of students and we were like 900 students at a time so we needed a structure we needed committees and i was like i hate the word president i i'm not gonna be that so we have to change it so i'm executive chair woman now (laughs) yeah so i have so many follow-up questions about everything that you said about the the jail if you could change anything about the judicial system right now that you've been in it several times, what will you change? Mm. Well, I would uh, take down every prison, um, maybe turn them into shelters for people or places of, of housing, um, maybe permaculture communities. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be wasteful of them, but, but no more prisons over out. And if somebody has done something that makes them a, a true danger to other people, maybe I want to say something like islands where they, but they wouldn't lose every other freedom. And they, they might not be able to be near the people who would be um, at risk if they've been predatory. Uh, they might be kept away from people they would possibly be likely to abuse. But this whole prison industrial complex, I would never allow a company to profit from hiring prisoners. And boy, companies do. You know, think about it. They don't have to pay insurance. They don't have to pay supervisors. It's great. And there are loads of companies using prison labor. And it's a little bit, uh, a little bit, what am I saying? It's a lot like enslavement. It's a return. It's a backward return to a time of saying some people's lives aren't worth the same as others. And then, um, you know, that we have universities across this country and every year, almost every major university um, has a graduating class of lawyers. Well, how are you going to keep all those lawyers employed? <laughs> You have to have this criminal justice system. Now, there are other, I'm all for environmental justice and practicing environmental law. I think there are ways that the law can be so useful. And I've, I've surely appreciated lawyers who've um, gotten into um, the assistance of uh, people like me who go up against the law and we have to get advice, you know, when you're supposed to shut up. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I don't want to be disrespectful toward lawyers. I like many of the lawyers I know, but I think we have to look at the big system and realize that there are some people who benefit from our criminal justice system and some who don't. And you can do racial uh, analysis and see that there are people, uh, mainly people of color, who are going to be amongst the ones who get harmed the most. So I, I think we have to acknowledge that and dismantle that system. Um, it, it's not a good thing for people to be employed to keep other people caged up. And, and so I don't, I don't really want to see the prison guards unemployed 
you know, they've got a very strong union, but I believe people could be so much happier in a different setting. And it's weird in a way, Annie, that when you're in prison, you start to notice actually the women who've been in the prison a long time get to know the guards. They've been in the prison a long time. And, you know, they, 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 you know, they know how old each other's kids are. They, they know details about each other's lives. And so it's just this kind of artifice that says, but you're the prisoner, you've got eight numbers and, and allows guards to, you know, kind of play whichever way they want to, want to take it. And it's, it's not a healthy thing at all for people, anyone, for anyone in the system. Wow. And, and something that really caught my attention when I came here is that prisons are, and, and jails are, well, not jails, but prisons are private. They are companies, right, in America? Well, some are. We have the Bureau of Prisons. And that's that one thing about the federal prisons, that, you know, I don't have anything good to say about prison at all. But the federal prisons are a bit safer because they're so um, monitored and there's so much standardization. Like everybody wears the same uniform, everybody wears the eats the same food, everybody goes through the same routine. You you can predict everything. It's you know it's a wonderful time for reading because everything else is utterly boring. Um, but when you start to look at those private prisons, there's no oversight. Um, people can uh, be very corrupt and get away with all kinds of scams. Uh, people can be trapped in the system and, you know, sh should be eligible to go out or to have visitors. And, you know, it's all up to whomever is sitting, you know, behind the desk, more or less. The, so it, it, that's, I think, those uh, prisons for profit are a terrible thing. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and... Uh, also, of course, the detention centers. You know, I've been thinking a lot, Annie, about the reality that you don't see any caged children at the Ukraine-Poland border, but you sure do at the U.S. border. And um, it's not a perfect situation in terms of the welcoming of Ukrainians into, um, say, a country like Poland, because people who are in Ukraine who are black or brown are not being automatically welcomed. But it is something to behold that so far there's not one major refugee camp in Poland that people said, come into our homes. And now they're asking others, you know, please open your homes. But it, it, it's we need the moral imagination to start to see that as the norm rather than treating refugees as um, people that are throwaway, throwaway people or people who have to be walled out or people who threaten us, especially you know when we've waged the wars in so many places or supported those who wage wars. So something maybe will change as people watch the war in Ukraine. I'm not sure. What do you think? I... I am fascinated to see. I have friends in Ukraine. We interview uh, Irina, Irina Brushmina. She participated in a program that War Beyond War and the Rotary Action Group for Peace created last year. That's called Peace Education and Action for Impact. Russia and Ukraine, they had a joint team. Um, that was excellent. And she participated, we, we knew each other through Rotary. Um, so and, and she was in the podcast in the last episode. So I've been I've been following her journey, how she left uh, Kiev the day or two days after uh, Russia invaded, and she has been staying with people in people's houses. And I've seen I've, that's a story I know. I, I I love to see the hope, and I love to see experiences like her that she was welcomed by people in Rotary, right, in the organization, because it's kind of the nature of the organization. But many other people that aren't in Rotary are welcoming um, people from Ukraine, and even my case from Venezuela. I uh, I'm here and I'm living with people that's not my family, and they are Americans who welcoming who welcome me in their family, and I'm I'm. Um, one Mississippian more now. So I see the good examples and the hope and the, wow. I love that. 
Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. that. That's wonderful to know that you have a friend on the other side of the world who's having an experience so similar to yours. And I want to tell you that uh, eight of my young Afghan friends have been welcomed by people in a small city in the south of Portugal. It's, and it's a permaculture community that is sponsoring them. And they're so happy. The, the Afghans celebrate their new year on the first day of spring. So they had the Nauru's celebration and the kids danced. And um, it was just a wonderful thing. They showed us pictures of the meal they prepared for, for the people that were hosting them. I'm, I'm sure that you've probably been able to help people learn about Venezuelan culture a lot too. I'm really curious about the word permaculture. I have heard that word, but I don't know what it means. What is permaculture? Well, as I understand it, it's a way of taking stock of the land and the resources and really thinking and mapping carefully how to plant, when to plant, what to plant. And if the if the ground has seemed to be unusable, like it's too rocky, it's too arid, it's not good soil, can it be regenerated? And I, I mean, I was amazed. A, a very renowned permaculture expert named Rosemary Morrow from Afghanistan came over to be with my young friends there uh, about three times a year, about three years in a row, I think. And she taught them these permaculture practices. And they were actually one of them would go into a refugee camp and, oh, those refugee camps in Afghanistan and Kabul are squalid, desolate, awful places, especially when the winter rain and snow comes, everything just turns to oozing mud and it's it's dehumanizing in every way. People don't have fuel and they're burning tires and people are always afraid they'll run out of water and often they do. It's just awful, awful, awful. But there's those kids were teaching life skills to the women, tutoring children, and then helping people. You know, you can sometimes in kind of like potted plants, grow microgreens or make rocket gardens. And so it, it is another one of those signs of hope and beauty. Um, so anyway, permaculture experts get very, very excited about the amount of change they can accomplish. And I see them working in a way, in a very practical way to tackle the greatest terror we all face, which is the terror of what we're doing to our own environment and, and climate catastrophe. And, and, and they're not doomers by any means. You know, they, they are practical, thoughtful. And so because they were so good at having a network that could pop to life and I mean, if you had said to me, Kathy Kelly, could you make a spreadsheet to account for where these 100 young Afghan, I was, <laughs> um, I wouldn't know where to begin. I'd be so intimidated. But they just within days had a, a very good and usable way for us to kind of keep track of who might have a possibility to go somewhere to, to a safer haven. And, um, you know, we're just, we're such a small group. Talk about a drop in the bucket, but we have managed to help. Uh, well, about 16 people go to safer places and to keep, uh, it's something I'm sure you've done a lot of, Ani, just to keep people hopeful when they're starting to lose hope and panic. Um, so I'm not an expert at that, but I have been so happy to work with an ad hoc community of people who we call ourselves buddies and each one, each individual has a buddy and some are, some are Westerners living in the UK or Canada or the United States, we're teamed up with people in Australia and Portugal. And then um, the idea is to kind of make sure nobody on our list gets lost. But that that takes a lot of um, scrutiny, really, mm -hmm. because the problems are increasing, not decreasing. Yeah. We have touch a little bit the Afghanistan and, and a couple of the conflicts, ongoing conflicts right now. And one of your quotes that I love is to, one way to stop the war is to continue to tell the truth about this one, right? Mm -hmm. um, so from, from your perspective, and think of me like a baby, like I don't know, which <laughs> I don't know anything. Um, what's, what's going on in Afghanistan? Well, you know, the United States 
negotiated a troop withdrawal, but they certainly didn't negotiate a peace agreement. So the war, in a sense, ended. And, you know, I saw this so similarly in Iraq. The bombing war ended, and then there was 13 years of an economic war. And I see that, uh, you know, the United States does not like to lose a war. And, you know, you couldn't say, well, the United States showed the Taliban, didn't they? The Taliban kind of said to the United States, you know, you're out of here. And so I think the um, after the Vietnam War, the same kind of punishment economically, the United States tried to punish the Vietnamese for, you know, a decade or more. And I'm afraid that Afghans are in for that too. And and the United States is saying, well, we can't recognize the Taliban. They're terrorists. Now, we were terrifying also with night raids and bombings and drone strikes. There were lots of people that were terrified by the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. But we have called the Taliban terrorists. And so then this next step, it's a bit complicated, isn't it? Um, the United States had previously said to Afghanistan, look, your your economy is so poorly cared for by your government, but you can put all of your financial reserves in our reserve bank in New York City. And basically, the United States was backing up the puppet government that was there. And so all of the Afghan money is in New York. And President Biden said, it's frozen. The Taliban can't have a dime of it. Well, how do you run a country if you can't pay your teachers and your healthcare workers and get your infrastructure working? And so that, you know, already things were going pretty badly. But then President Biden also said, I'm giving 3.5 billion of that money away to people who have claims in U.S. courts against the Taliban for 9-11. So there goes $3.5 billion. And the United States said, we'll determine how the other 3.5 billion will be spent, and none of it gets spent until all these court cases are finished up. Well, our court cases can go pretty slowly. So the Afghans are starving. 13,000 children have died. The Afghan winter is harsh. And if you don't have fuel and you don't have food, you know, kids become malnourished and then they get a respiratory disease and they die. And it's being predicted, you know, the United Nations people. I mean, it's interesting. There's a guy named... David Beasley, he was a Trump appointee, and he was a big CEO for, forgive me, I don't remember which big company, but it was, he now is in charge of the World Food Program, and that man has done his best. He has railed against the policies that are contributing to the deaths of infants, and he said, this is hell. What we're seeing is hell in Yemen. And he said the same about Afghanistan. But um, I don't know that it falls on deaf ears, but I do know that again and again and again, billions go to the military. The Pentagon always has what it wants and more. And then the United Nations is begging, you know, could you please free up some money? But a country can't run on relief. You know, they have to have an actual economy And so the Afghans are in big trouble right now. And also a lot of the people who would be the most adept at running the country are running away from the country because the Taliban have treated many people cruelly and have threatened many people. So um, sometimes I think, well, are we right to be helping people leave? Who's going to run that country? And yet, for a woman who says, I'm at risk, um, I feel like at least if she could go to a safer place and maybe go back to the country someday. But there's no easy, safe place for people in Afghanistan. Now Pakistan is probably moving toward regime change and there will be destabilization and some of our young friends are there. And um, I, I, I'm sure, Ani, you could match story for story with me with the, what you've experienced in um, the ways in which, you know, Venezuelans who just want to take care of their families and, you know, earn an income and, and live a normal life. And, and it doesn't, it seems as though that gets to be more and more elusive. Um, I think 
One of the ways to stop a next war is to tell the truth about this war. But for U.S. people, we have to tell the truth that we've become a permanent warfare state. And war is so much of our economy. You know, the top crop isn't corn, it's weapons. And you have to have an enemy to get people to keep paying for these weapons. So Putin's been perfect for the war for the Lockheed Martins and Raytheons and Northrop Grumman's and their stocks. I think it was Mark, you sent me those screenshots of the profits um, the last time we were on a call. And uh, those were very helpful. I I, I did my first PowerPoint and I I was pleased to be able to, to show that. You can just see how exactly at the point when war broke out in Ukraine, when Russia invaded, those stocks started to become more profitable. Yeah. It's definitely a the war system is an economic system. Mm-hmm. Um, I have learned that here in the, mm-hmm. the US. Um, I think war for me, it's so far, like I don't see it um, coming from Venezuela. Like when I hear war, I relate to Second World War. I don't I don't know about Afghanistan, about Korea or or. Vietnam, it's far from from me, it's far from my reality, but it's everything here in the States. I've mm-hmm. heard the war war so many times since I'm here. That's really impressive. It's it's shocking, I think. Uh-huh. Well, I want you to know that if I could have said the war system is an economic system, um, when I was 20 years old, I would have been way ahead of the curve. So thank you for that. Um, when I first heard about Iraq, um, I had to go for a map and say, oh, where's Iraq? <laughs> um, I, I couldn't speak the language at all. I um, uh, could spell it and find it on a map with a, if you gave me a few minutes. So I really had to have an upward learning curve. There, I know one minister who says war is God's way of teaching geography to American people. And that's kind of a cynical thought, I know. But um, in a way, we don't easily recognize other countries sometimes until we're bombing the daylights out of them. And that is so wrongful. But I, th- I wonder, I think curiosity is so, so important for people to start asking, caring, and, and not allowing Fox News to shape their view about you know, who it's okay to care about. You know, how about it's okay to care about everybody? Uh, and, and I really hope that this way of covering the war in Ukraine would be the standard, the norm, that every war would get this kind of coverage. Um, Do you think the media contributes to the to incentivate the conflict or helps release it, like the media coverage in, in Ukraine? Because mm-hmm. I've... Like, I do recognize that the Ukrainian in, in Russian conflict has been way more coverage than, you know, Yemen or Afghanistan, at least, you know, from my perspective. I wasn't here in the States when that were was happening, but all the news in the, that we received come from the U.S., even being in Venezuela. So everything that you see here is what we see, or I was going to say Latin America, but I'm going to go for Venezuela because I haven't lived anywhere else. So do you think do you think the media contributes to solve the conflict or doesn't? What do you think mm-hmm. about it? Well, I think that people in the United States are very vulnerable to wanting cartoons. Good guys, bad guys, don't clutter us <laughs> up with too much more information. And, and, and it, it never really works that way. Um, so I, I think the media has at times um, determined who is the irredeemable bad guy in a situation and then used that to justify all manner of punishment of the bad guy. But what people don't see is the people really bearing the brunt of the punishment are children, poor people, vulnerable elderly people. So we have to push ourselves to see that. I I think it has so much to do with literacy. And, you know, I want to go back to you learning a new language. You said you really didn't have a choice and you learned that language. And I bet you studied hard and listened carefully. And we need that kind of literacy. But, um, you know, United States people have been able to be kind of lazy 
about learning other languages. We're not bilingual or trilingual very often, you know, which isn't true always of other countries and people in other lands. And we also need a literacy, a, a literacy about, about war to be able to, as much as possible, push ourselves to understand uh, what the experience of war, the consequences of war will be for people who can't escape or for people who, who do escape. And I think, you know, it's so interesting. You said you go back to World War II because there's a lot to be learned, I think, from examining World War I and World War II. Uh, you know, after World War I, there were a lot of people at the very end of that war who were fighters at the front who just put their packs down and sank down exhausted on their backpacks, you know, that relieved that they didn't have to pick up their weapons or face any more shell shock. And there weren't cheers and, you know, parades. Now, sometimes there were. And Armistice Day is and should be a very special event. But you can actually see photos of soldiers who are just exhausted. And for a while, it seemed like people were ready to say, you know, we don't, we don't want another war. And I, I, I sensed that after the war in Vietnam. But gosh, that, the war makers don't waste any time. And we're seeing that now at the end of the war, well, the end of the U.S. troop involvement in Afghanistan. I'm not seeing evaluations and let's examine this carefully and let's ask what we did wrong and what we should never have done. It's like, whoa, on to the next war. And I didn't expect it to be Ukraine. I actually thought we were going to be prepped up for a war with China, and I bet that will happen. Um, and the scariest thing about that is that you can, you know, how they do war games um, on, on video screens? Well, the U.S., with its war games with China, loses every single time. And so now the U.S. is saying, well, the one thing we do have are nuclear weapons. And then, scary. Being said, scary. Yeah, there's a guy named Admiral Charles Richard who's actually said, in the event of a military entanglement with China, recourse to nuclear weapons would be a probability, not a possibility. So we need to sort of sit with that and recognize, you know, that's the nuclear threat and that's holding the gun to the head of the whole world, you know. Give us our way, or we might start it. And it's um, it's not a very mature way to do things, is it? I mean, no. you know, I, if if I learn anything during the peace allocation action for impact problem, I learned that every conflict, every uh, violence, every um, violence conflict actually, because conflict doesn't necessarily mean violence, but everything is. It's a feeling and an emotion that wasn't acknowledged and wasn't managed. Like all those conflicts can be solved with a conversation, with a real conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I've, I've, I've recently went to the World War II Museum here in New Orleans. Ah, interesting. Yeah. I live 45 minutes away from New Orleans and, and I've been fortunate enough to visit and in all the, the, the stars of the war is really conversations that people didn't have. Like, they just go... Good for you. Have said and say, you know, I feel this way, and you feel that way. Let, but they were... I'm sorry, man. I can say that if women will be in charge of, of you know, governments, I think we we talk about feelings, and we acknowledge feelings, and society right now says, you know, women are weak because we feel, we we say our feelings, and men are, they can't, they can't feel, and they have to be strong, and anyways, but that's completely mm -hmm. off the conversation, but I just wanted to say it. It brought to mind Cory Booker at the um, hearing for, um, well, I hope Judge Brown, he, um, he certainly showed his feelings, and um, he was very vulnerable in that moment. And then she cried, and I thought, well, I think you're right. If we had a real revolution in terms of how we expect um, to be facilitated through our problems, and if we took weapons out of the toolkit. Mm -hmm. I, I always feel hopeful when David Swanson talks about how um, – 
you know, if uh, if Mark got into a, a, a debate and then a, a, a real um, battle, let's say, with David, none of us would expect that they'd each get a pistol and walk 10 paces in the opposite direction, turn around and shoot each other. And, and that's how I hope we'll someday view war as just so obsolete. But, you know, Albert Camus, after World War II, has, um, he wrote a book called Neither, Neither Victims Nor Executioners. And he pretty much said what you said, that we're in history up to our necks, you know, you know acknowledge that. And then he said, I, for my part, in the formidable gamble, um, choose to say words are stronger than weapons. It's a formidable gamble, but to, to say negotiation, discussion, diplomacy. Uh, and, and I'm glad that you've been already so steeped in organizing and resolving conflicts that you can draw these conclusions. I think that's great. Talking to you and hearing your, your perspective, you, somebody that have been physically in danger, you know, I've read that you have been in, in, Iraq and Afghanistan in danger and, and you risked your life. And I was going to ask you, did you ever regret that? Did you ever like regret putting yourself in danger? Like physically, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, I can't say I ever felt regret. I often felt that um, it didn't make rational sense that I had the blue passport and could escape, could leave, could go back to safety and security. I remember one time I was on the back porch of this place that we had. It was our home office for voices. And and I heard a plane go overhead. Chicago has a big airport and, and the planes you know flew regularly right over my apartment building. But I, I guess I had just gotten back and I realized, oh, I'm hearing a plane and I'm not, my shoulders aren't hunching up and I'm not bracing for an explosion. And that wouldn't have been true for the people I had just left behind. So I, I uh, but I also felt at times as though, particularly quite a few young mothers were entrusting to me what their perspective was and giving me words that it was my responsibility to kind of carry beyond um, the war zone because they couldn't escape and they couldn't be heard. I remember one mother cradling her infant who would not survive. And she said, believe me, I pray that this never happens to a mother who is from your country. And that kind of kindness, that um, you know, just unbelievably stretch, un an unbelievable stretch of kindness and goodness. Um, yeah, it, there's, there's much to be grateful for, even in times when uh, the hell of war has uh, just cascaded on, onto people who can't escape. So what kind of conversations did you have with the people that you were with when in that when you hear the airplane going and, and the bomb close? What what were you talking about? What were you thinking? Like internal conversations and external conversations as well with other people. Mm -hmm. One time, I mean, it's kind of an unusual conversation for me. I was in Gaza. And uh, the is Israel was using U.S. weapons and pounding Gaza just day after day. And the children, went, you know, they would hear an explosion and they would say to me, that was an Apache helicopter firing a Hellfire missile. And then they'd hear another explosion. And, and this little boy, Yusuf, would say, that was a 500-pound bomb dropped from an F-35. And I thought, oh my goodness, they taught me how to name these different killing explosions. So that's part of it. Um, you know, people begin to understand what white phosphorus is and what it does and they, you know, what, what the healing process will be like. There's a lot of things that people talk about. One young mother in that the mother of Yusuf in that family. I remember when, when the ceasefire finally happened, she sank down on a big chair and the back of her hand hit her forehead and she said, can you believe this is the first time I breathe in all these 22 days? I was so frightened for my children. Um, so there's fright and, but 
you know, on the other hand, uh, in Iraq, we were in a five-story hotel, and the owner had invited his neighbors to come and be relatively safe. And he he was Muslim, but he invited a couple Christian families as well, and his own extended family. And a baby was born into this community. And there was a grandfather who was the most, well, he was a lawyer, and he was so eloquent. So we did have conversations and talked about our lives. And the teenagers played risk every night. And I remember my friend Cynthia Banas, she felt like, oh, it's kind of time to go to sleep now. And so she said, you know, you could always finish the game tomorrow. <laughs> and the teenagers looked at her and they said, oh, but Madame Cynthia, we might not be here tomorrow. So the kids do know. But I developed a poke. I've never played a game of poker in my life, but boy, could I put on a poker face. <laughs> I never wanted to scare the little children. So if a bomb exploded, I just kind of turned into a, like a statue for a moment and then would try to distract them. And it's interesting the games children play while bombs are falling. I, I had one little friend, Milada. She was maybe, I don't know, two and a half or three. And I had a lot of flashlights. Um, I'd, every time oh, somebody from the West was coming over, I'd say, look, I pack some extra flashlights in your bag because we can use them when the electricity goes out. So I have this stash of flashlights, and Milada wanted those flashlights. And if we went down into, it wasn't much of a bomb shelter, but her mom wanted to take, to take the kids down there when the explosions were just really heavy and hard. And so she would take one of my flashlights, and she'd use it as a gun. And she would pretend, and she would pretend to kill her sister and her mother and her new big friend. And her mother was really upset by that. You know, she'd make a tat tat noise. But I thought that was her way of imagining something. And then it didn't. It, what, it, you know, we were still there. Mm -hmm. And that gave her a sense of relief. And I'd hold her in my arms sometimes, and she'd sock herself and fall back, just arc back in my arms, and then come back to life and laugh and laugh and laugh. So I think kids imagine surviving, and not all do. I just have to add, you know, so the detail that these children were playing Risk, Risk, of course, is a game of simulated war. I have to admit that this, despite being a pacifist, my family plays Risk. And, you know, it's a very um, clean and simple way to pretend that war just involves rolling dice. And then when the game is over, you... You say good game and you go on with your life, but I couldn't help. Thank you. Well, that is one of life's ironies that it was yeah. a board game depicting military conquering. Yeah, right? <laughs> I just wanted to throw that in. I think it's the narrative is different when it's told from people that have been there, from people that leave the conflict, than what we see in the media. We, I don't think we humanize news. You know, we see mm -hmm. a bomb drop in Gaza. Period. We don't hear. You know, the kid that was there heard the bomb and identified what kind of bomb it was. Mm -hmm. So um, thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I think it, it gave me some sense of, of hope, you know, to hear the, the kids playing in that situation. It's like, yeah, um, you know, and it's it, it just it look, helps me look the good out of the bad. And that's something that my mom always told me. I remember... Mm -hmm crossing i had to cross on food one of the the border with venezuela and colombia it's one of the most dangerous borders in the war by the way oh. uh, and my mom and i had to cross it to get my visa to come here because the venezuela and us had broke diplomatic relationships so we had to walk the border to go to bogota to get my visa and oh. we saw this you know all the military and all the the guerrillas and the drug people and all of it and the refugees walking and my mom and i were laughing so hard but so so hard we we watched because i think we watched we leave the experience from the outside i mean we were walking the border to get my visa to go back home right i wasn't leaving my country with just but one backpack but i think and even the people that were living they were laughing with us and making jokes and and just mm -hmm. living living life in in that awful situation but I, i keep the message of hope i have a question for you and i uh when i was in high school i participated in the model of un i don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with it yeah yeah i 
was passionate about it and I really, really enjoyed it. And so I have a question for that. I always wanted to ask somebody that could give me a great answer. And I think you are that person. So if you were the head of the UN Security Council, let's call it chair, head, leader, president, whatever we want to call it. If you were the, the leader of the Security Council and no one will veto your decision. If Russia, Russia and China and the U.S., they will all agree, right? And they will say yes to whatever you mandate. What will you say? That we end the Security Council. Disband. <laughs> no more. No mas. I think that uh, the Security Council is wrongful. I think the General Assembly ought to be entrusted with the authority to um, weigh the realities, and there shouldn't be a hierarchy of certain countries that, uh, and certainly not a, 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 a veto situation. I think that was a poor plan. And then I would ask Dennis Halliday and Hans von Sponick, both of whom were undersecretary generals of the United Nations and served well and are seasoned diplomats and left their careers because they couldn't go along with what was going on in Iraq any longer. Uh, and Anne Wright is another person who was a former State Department person who left her job because it was an act of protest. She couldn't go along with the war making. And, you know, the, the United Nations, it, it's the only kid on the block in a sense. I don't want to lose the United Nations. And, you know, the 38 agencies that were at work in Afghanistan were all needed. But it's it's sort of set up to be parallel with a, a constant drive to control other people's economies through imposing, quote, development. And it really almost turns other countries' workers into sharecroppers. And it's, it's, it's not a viable system for countries and other lands to, to really grow and meet their needs. And also in a time of climate catastrophe, and when there's going to be many, many, many more waves of refugees, even if we don't have another war, uh, People will flee from floods and fires and um, avalanches. It's going to, you know, it's going to be a rocky road. And so I think that it's, it's now the time to start thinking about alternative structures predicated on cooperation and collaboration and then taking the money out of all of the military systems and looking for the courage to be humble. And admit, we made mistakes, just like we don't like what Putin is doing. Well, we've done the same thing. Look in the mirror, be humble, take the money out of the military. And I think ordinary average civilians, kind of like me thinking, I would never sit on the sidelines and watch a concentration camp slaughter people. Well, it's no time to be on the sidelines. We've really got to find kindred spirits. I feel like I just found another one today, Annie. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, Be shoulder to shoulder and, 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 and learn from one another. And uh, certainly, I think, follow the younger generation because uh, your group is learning quickly and with tremendous resilience. I, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. And uh, what you, you said resonate a lot with the uh, what World Beyond War says in their book, a global security system, the one of the alternative for war, for war, for the war system, is to you know reform the the United Nations and all these international um, organizations. So we are aligned. <laughs> um, so now talking more a little about War Beyond War and to kind of close our conversation today. Now that you have taken over the position of the leader let's call it not president, but leader um, of War Beyond War. What's your vision for the organization moving forward? Well, you know, I don't know a whole lot about real estate, but they, realtors tend to say location, location, location. And I want to say education, education, education. And that's why when David said, you know, we need a president, can you, I thought, you know, there, there's, I don't know of another group that is accomplishing so much education. I love it that the group doesn't have an office in a country because they deliberately want to be inter or globalized, international. And, and I think that um, if we can continue the energy 
and sort of a, a good phrase to me is courage for peace, not for war. If we can continue the energy and the vision, you know, you can't be a vegetarian between meals and then stop being a vegetarian at mealtime. You can't be a pacifist between wars. Um, so it, this is a very difficult time to articulate a vision that says we demand, we want, we insist on a world beyond war. But I think it's it's crucial, and it's where um, the militarists, I think, will try always to supplant that vision to create enough fear that people would um, be afraid of letting go of the chance to go to war. Mm-hmm. But I think you can't have a rational discussion about solving the real problems we face, pandemics, nuclear weapons, um, and uh, climate catastrophe if we don't figure out a way to dismantle the militaries. So we have to be kind of a, um, as linked as we can to the people who are carrying the brunt of suffering because of war and, in, and inequality, have one foot there and then the other foot firmly planted amongst people who say, we are going to resist. We're non-violently going to non-cooperate with the war makers and put an end to war. Thank you. Thank you, Ani. Thank you, Mark. It was great to be with the two of you today. What, what a great conversation. I'm, I'm so glad I had the idea that this would be a good combination to have you on the interview, Kathy. Um, I, I think the questions you asked, Ani, were different than the ones I would have, which shows me that each of us have a, you know, different, different starting mm-hmm. points in these conversations. Ani, you know, as Kathy said, I also at the age of 20 did not, did not have the knowledge and understanding that you have. Um, at the age of 20, I was quite naive. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. I just want to thank you both. Um, This has been a really great conversation. I hope we meet again, okay? Definitely. It's a pleasure to have talking to you. You're you're such an inspiration. All right. much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.